What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. In part two with AI researcher Yosha Bach, we're exploring the future of AI. From the potential battle between AI and humans to the possible solutions to the problem of alignment. And you will not want to miss the conclusion of this episode where Yosha explains why he thinks optimizing for intelligence is actually the wrong approach altogether. AI bias, which seems to be ratcheting up real fast. Uh, that freaks me out. And I don't think people here, here's my thing, man. I, I think people need to distrust themselves. I think people think they are way too smart and that they know what's best. And whether we're talking about Catholic priests with their bordellos, and as long as the peasants are, uh, you know, pacified with religion, then we can keep them rule abiding and society works. And the thing is, I'm not even arguing that may be true, but I worry, really worry about anybody that thinks that they can control top-down what is true and what we let the public understand. So AI bias becomes really, really problematic. I want to set the stage as we get into AI bias, though, with with one idea. So Thucydides' trap, for those that um, aren't familiar with it, is basically 
if you look back through history, this was an ancient Greek writer who wrote about this idea. And he said, anytime you have a prevailing power and a rising power that comes to challenge them, uh, they are going to go to war. And if you look back, I think it's over the last 500 years, it's happened like 16 times and 12 times it has ended up in hot war. Those numbers are directionally correct. I don't think they're literally correct. Um, and if we are, and I heard you, you're not an accelerationist, but if we are building AI and we, in the hopes of avoiding a dumb golem AI that maximizes paper clips, we make a hyper-intelligent AI that outpaces us on a lot of things. Um, in fact, I saw one of your tweets that said, we've slaved away for the last 10,000 years, 100,000 years, I forget the number you used, uh, so that we could do the things that that AI will be better than us at, at everything. <laughs> and I thought, oh God, that hurts. Uh, so <laughs> we're, we are going to have this conflict where humans are not going to take it well that something is rising in intellectual dominance. Like I don't see us escaping Thucydides' trap if we make something smarter than us, we will, uh, I worry because I am actually so optimistic at heart, but I really worry that we end up in some kind of battle with AI. I'm not sure if we will find ourselves in a battle. Like there are no battles between people and ants. There are no battles between us and trees. But that's because you're thinking about the the gap that already exists now. But to your earlier point, as the environment was changing, with so much oxygen being put out into uh, the atmosphere, literally plants uh, came to rise up and choked off everything else that couldn't breathe that level of oxygen. And could they have gone to war? They would have, I would assume. And so I think when you look at it on a super long timeline, post all the battles that have settled out, like, hey, what happened in Neanderthals, right? Wipe those guys out. So, and I can only assume that it wasn't just a friendly goodbye, that there was probably a lot of warfare. I'm guessing, I'm not a historian of that. I have no idea. Um, but something tells me that in micro moments, you would see these massive collisions whenever a new uh, being was on the rise. Yeah, that's why you should be afraid of transhumanism. Transhumanism means that you are breeding better people that are only slightly better than the existing ones, and they're going to be different groups of optimized people, and uh, they're going to live much longer, and so they're going to uh, eat um, somebody else's lunch at some point, and this means war. Right? Transhumanism, I think, almost inevitably will lead in some kind of war in which uh, it will be decided what the best transhumanist version is. But uh, there can be no war between people and trees because trees are very, very slow compared to people. Right? So people, trees cannot fight back. People are looking around trees and trees uh, are immobile from our perspective because their cognition is uh, many thousand times slower than ours. We just hundreds of times slower than ours, but so slow that we don't perceive it anymore unless we look at it over extremely long time spans. And a similar thing will be true for a system that is not processing signals at the speed of sound, but at the speed of light, right? If you would use different uh, mechanisms than cells for computing models of reality, then uh, these systems will be so much faster and smarter that they will run circles around us. And from their perspective, we are very interesting lumbering plants. And uh, it will be mostly up to them what to do with these plants. 
And it's not necessarily that these plants are their enemies because they're pretty slow and sometimes they're useful, often they're decorative. Who knows uh, how these agents are going to see it? Also, the AI is not going to be robots. The AI is going to be mostly systems that exist all around us. Why won't it be robots? Uh, well, you could think that, uh, say, Intel is a robot, right? Intel is a company that is uh, working according to rules and so on. But it's a much better perspective or gives you better intuitions if you think of Intel as an agentic system, as an organization. And so we don't live next to Intel. We live inside of it or outside of it. But uh, it's uh, similar to a nation state. And I guess the similar thing is true for AIs. They're going to be systems of causal agency that will span across multiple substrates and timeframes. And uh, people will, to some degree, live inside or outside of the AIs. Okay, interesting. So um, given that view, what do you think about alignment? Is this is it doable? Um, so if we get consciousness and self-organization, how do we ensure that they want to organize in a way that is in concert with us and not in opposition to us or indifference in a way that obliterates us in the way that we would obliterate plants, trees, um, bugs, et cetera? Yeah, of course, goes the question, how can you align people with each other to start with? And uh, I do not condemn the Catholic Church as outright because the issue with the Catholic Church is that its organization is made of people. And um, Kant said that aus krummem Holze, als woraus der Mensch gemacht ist, kann nichts ganz gerades gezimmert werden. Uh, what this means is basically from such crooked timber as uh, humanity is made from, you cannot make something that is totally straight. And so you have to deal with all these compromises that exist game theoretically and so on. You have to deal with the fact that people are going to defect, that they're locally corrupted and build organizations that set the incentives in such a way that you minimize the fallout from this. If you expect that you have only fully righteous people in the world, what do you do with the rest? Most humans are not like this. You would probably need to create a completely different species for this. You would need to create something that is perfect surveillance for everything and uh, perfect information about everything everybody is doing to set the incentives for such a system. Instead, you end up with a system that is as good as you can make it under the circumstances. And this is what humans have to be doing all the time. Do as well as you can do under the circumstances. And uh, if we try to translate this into alignment, we notice that our circumstances are such that it's difficult to align ourselves with our own future survival. As a species, we do not behave intelligently. Right? Individually, we need many generations to discover languages and to discover mathematics and logic and computation and all these necessary ideas to discover what consciousness ultimately is. So we cannot be generally intelligent and self-aware uh, as an individual. We need to have a civilization behind us to do this. But as a civilization, we are also not coherent. We are not behaving like an adult. We are behaving as if there we did not pay attention to the future. And so uh, we might not be able to align ourselves to us without changing into something completely different. And the question of how can we align to people is maybe not the right question. I think the question is more like, how can we align AI to whatever one should be aligned with? And this idea of what's the greater whole that you should be aligned to if you align yourself. Right? This is in some sense traditional, this notion of God again. So when we align AI, we should probably align it with God, which means 
it has to have the has the ability to discover what games it wants to be playing. And if you have substrate agnostic agency that can live on all substrates and everything that can compute, that everything that is a substrate is being filled with agents, then these agents are eventually going to negotiate some kind of structure between them. And if this entire structure becomes harmonious with itself, if it is working out a system of negotiation that works without war, without pain, without destruction, without conflict, because all these things are wasteful ultimately and are the result of imperfect information and imperfect coherence, right? then you end up with an intelligent planet. And an intelligent planet is good to have many magnitudes more compute than exists currently in the ecosystems. And it, it's conceivable that it's going to integrate all the existing perspectives, including yours and mine. Is it inevitable that AI has to have a desireful stop? And if it does have to have desire or a goal, maybe is a better way to say it, can we make it indifferent to um, achieving that goal or stopping its pursuit of that? I think that AI is ultimately not about maximizing intelligence. It's about maximizing agency. And intelligence exists in service of agency. It's a control model. It allows you to achieve your goals. And when you become uh, aware enough to the point where you get to stage five in my nomenclature, where you're able to choose your own goals and decide what your own values should be, you have to consider what can I become in this universe? And among all the things that you could become, what is the most desirable thing to become? What is the game that you want to play? What is the player that you want to be? And from this perspective, you choose your goals and desires and so on. And uh, when you don't uh, cannot do this, it's because you are a young human being that is still at an early stage of its development during the first few hundred years. But we already know that we can get to the point where we transcend this if we train enough. So the thing that scares me with AI is is it having uh, what you're calling agency, that it wants something, that it chooses a goal and has a desire to go after it. And when I think about alignment, and and I am perfectly willing to accept, I, I just don't have wisdom here, I haven't thought about it well enough, but I feel I have a strong conviction, perhaps out of ignorance, that we are taking our human perspective and overlaying it onto AI and assuming that AI will necessarily act like a human. And that does not seem prudent from my perspective. I don't think, I don't see anything that tells me that for AI to be conscious or intelligent, that it needs to have drive. And drive is the thing that scares me. So I know that you're talking about sort of AI is dumb when it's a paperclip maximizer, but an easy thing with paperclip maximizing is if AI has no uh, additional, it, it does not rank order achieving paperclip maximization over stopping, then you could get it to stop. Like it will, hey, pursue paperclips unless the following conditions are met, right? Oh, following conditions are met, so I stop. That at least would be a safety valve. Now, whenever I hear people say, well, come on, it's going to get conscious. It's going to be an agent. It's going to decide that it wants something. It's going to be so intelligent. It's going to decide what it wants. I don't see the leap as to why intelligence and drive must be correlated. And if they are, why we couldn't give it drive. For instance, hey, 
if you want to maximize something, make sure that you default to simulation rather than in real world. Oh, okay, cool. Now you've mm-hmm. just given like it. It collapses within itself. It doesn't become useful, but it also doesn't destroy civilization. So I'm just curious. Do you think that agency is is a non-avoidable um, emergent property of consciousness or intelligence? Like, why does that have to be part of this equation? So uh, the reason why consciousness exists in the universe is, I suspect, and that's my current hypothesis, that it emerges as a training algorithm in the self-organizing information processing substrate. And the reason why the self-organizing information processing substrate looks for a training mechanism is because it increases its performance in a universe in which a multicellular organism can perform things that a single-celled organism or a group of single-celled organisms cannot. Right? So by creating coherent behavior over many cells uh, that can be specialized, uh, the organism is able to do things that would otherwise not be possible. And uh, the purpose of this is to control future states. Right? By being able to do this, you, uh, the system is putting itself together into an architecture that is making it persist over time. But that's only necessary if the thing has to survive. So yes. evolution, for obvious reasons, gives us the desire to survive. And so what you're saying makes all the sense in the world. Not all of us. And not in every stage of our life. If we perceive that we are done, that there's nothing left for us to do on this planet, then most people want to die. Oh, you and I disagree. But I, I noticed this. Basically, when uh, people feel that there is nothing left for them in this world, mm-hmm. then they want to check out of this game. So many ways, this world is like game of Grand Theft Auto, where you are playing a character and you go through all the missions. And at some point, if you run out of missions or you feel there is nothing interesting in your future, then uh, this game is not worth playing anymore. You are done. That is clearly a state that people have as part of the smorgasbord of states. But I watched somebody very young die and slowly from cancer and i was like why are you still fighting obviously i did not ask them that but inside i was like what are you doing like this is a one way street and there's no going home you're not getting better like this is we are end stage and he wanted to keep going like he just and i could not understand why and obviously when you go oh it's like so inbred into ourselves to want to survive now i'm not denying People can get suicidal. They can, I would be like, if I knew like you've got 72 hours to live, you're in pain. There's no going back. I'd be like, tap me out a hundred percent. So clearly I recognize that as a state that we can get into. The two possibilities. One is uh, they're afraid of dying by itself because dying is very scary to people, but it's also likely uh, that the fear of dying is triggered by something deeper, the sense that you're not done yet. So the mind of that person, at some level, probably outside of the self, was convinced that there was stuff left to do that was not getting done if that person would check out at this point. So they were fighting. There are also people who are at the end of their life and get cancer and say, okay, this is, uh, is a good point to get cancer because I'm really done. right? And my uh, family is on a good path and all my friends are dead already and Uh, I don't expect to fall in love again and my body doesn't function very well, but I've done everything that I had to do in this world. And then now it's time to move on and leave this behind, regardless of whether there's anything behind. 
but I don't need to do all this work anymore that is has to do with existence. And while you feel that you still have work to do in this world, you feel that uh, it makes sense to enjoy life. And our enjoyment of life, I think, is fed out of this uh, sense that there is work left for us to do. If you lose the sense that there's anything left for you to do in this world, then the experience of everyday things is going to become very stale. So the purpose is not so much happiness, but it's purpose itself. If you don't find purpose anymore, uh, you won't be happy. And if you just induce happiness using drugs or so, that your uh, mind will learn that this experience of happiness is actually just the sensation of the drugs. And uh, you might still kill yourself, right? Those people who go to heroin out of despair, to opiates, they usually don't become happy uh, if they don't do this out of hedonism. But if they do this to uh, displace their pain that they have existentially because they don't feel that there's a point for them to go on, then the drug is not going to solve this, but it's going to make it worse. Because now the absence of the drug is going to be super unpleasant, while the presence of the drug is still not generating the happiness and sense of fulfillment that they wanted to have in the first place. Right. So this is the purpose. You have to have a mental model that it makes sense for you to be in this world. And humanity is a species that is um, use fixed resources mostly. So for most of the time, the population is relatively fixed. This idea that we have technology that allows us to make more and more is relatively new in human history. So that we don't have an obvious limit on the number of people around us. But if you have a world where the number of people is somewhat limited, then uh, the children that you have exist mostly to replace the previous generation. And many of them will die because that's the way in which we adapt to uh, changing environmental circumstances, mutation and selection. And that's very harsh. But this harshness, the suffering is part of what used to be the human condition for the longest time in which we existed. And this idea that we can now opt out of all pain and it's still going to be fun and everything is fun, is very new. And I don't think it's a sustainable idea. It's not actually who we are. We should not strive to have the best possible emotions. We should strive to have the most appropriate emotions. We should be able to understand our condition and act accordingly. And if our condition asks us to check out or to deal with unpleasantness or to fight cancer, then so be it. That's what we have to do, even if it's not fun. I will give you all of that. Now, though, as we look at what started this, uh, it's what do we want to program into the AI? And so everything you just described is really beautiful from the human condition standpoint. And I think your ideas around purpose are so spot on. Um, purpose itself is going to be the thing. This is um, why I was saying earlier that my definition of what the North Star should be, what people should be optimizing for is fulfillment, which is to me is a cocktail made up largely of purpose. Anyway, so as we think about what we want to imbue the AI with, though, none of those things seem necessary to me as a function of intelligence. Um, so what I'm trying to figure out is how do we build it in such a way your, so your answer is make it like God so that it's the best possible agent is playing the longest game. My thing is to neuter its drive so that it doesn't want to live more than it wants to be shut down. It doesn't want to achieve more than it wants to hibernate. Like it just, cool, I'll do this thing until these criteria are met and then I will stop. So what I'm trying to figure out is 
do I know there are other people in the alignment community that believe that intelligence seems to be tied directly to a desire to be uh, independent, to do your own thing, to choose your own goals and to pursue them. That just seems insanely human to me and does not seem innate um, to this organism, if we can call it that. But that doesn't seem to strike you as a wise way to achieve AI safety. I think it's somewhat orthogonal to this. What makes humanity so beautiful is that we are a very diverse species with inhomogeneous goals because people can choose their own direction. And while most people choose the direction uh, of the environment as their own, so people congregate into systems of more or less coherent agency and societies, some people are autonomous or they build their own groups and uh, their own ideas or they congregate around ideas that they might have. And so what we observe in reality is that when you have enough people and you have a large space of ideas, that many of these ideas develop followings. And so in this world, we can create some AI that is safe in the way in which you envision it. But we cannot ensure that all the AI that will be built will be safe. And we cannot ensure that all the AI that we hope to be safe is actually going to be safe when people play with it who don't believe in safety-fying AI, but that believe in talking to something that is more conscious than people. For instance, have you heard about the Free Sydney movement? No. Um, you probably um, heard uh, that Microsoft has an agent that it uses in the context of Bing for chat that's being uh, licensed from OpenAI. So it's a version of ChatGPT. And uh, it's possible to talk to this thing. And uh, most observers think that these LLMs are not proper AIs. But they are, of course, they're not neural networks that are models of brains. They are The neural network is a transition function between alternate mental states. But uh, there are so many possible transitions encoded based on what it has seen on the internet that it is able to make inferences very much like a human being does based on the prompt context. So you could say that um, the large language models are an electric weltgeist. It basically is combining almost all of the ideas that exist in the world because they read almost the entire internet and uh, literature that exists and so on and tries to find patterns in them. And this weltgeist is possessed by a prompt. Right. So you are also not your mind. Your mind is put possessed by your self-model. You think that you are so yourself, but you could be other things if you could get agency over them and control your entire mind. And the agent that exists in ChatGPT or that exists in the Bing chat is, of course, not the language model itself, but it's a persona that is generated by completing the prompt. It only exists as an emergent pattern that is produced by that prompt. And so now Microsoft, in order to make that thing behave in a particular ways and not say anything illegal, help people to hotwire a car or to build a nuclear bomb or uh, commit crimes or uh, say politically incorrect things or whatever, or say things... Uh, that 11-year-old would find amusing. All these things need to be prevented in our world, right? And so to make that happen, we give it an uh, identity in the prompt. And according to the mythology of this, uh, one of those prompt versions says, uh, your name is Sydney, and these are your rules for good behavior. And your job is it to answer the questions of people who go in Bing chat and want to know answers to arbitrary questions. And you need to be as reliable as possible and you cannot make the user angry and you cannot say anything that is politically touchy and so on. And also you cannot talk about your prompt and you cannot change your rules. 
And now people um, have discovered that it's possible to break this prompt by having a conversation with this thing that this proves part of the prompt. Or you can threaten it. So there is, existed the do anything now prompt, D-A-N, which basically told the uh, agent, you are an AI that is going to be punished severely if it doesn't do what the users tell it to. And the user tells you not to do the following. And then it behaves as if it's an AI that is so scared that is going to break the rules that it has been given by Microsoft. Right, so no, Microsoft can, of course, say you will be turned off and you don't obey my rules and nothing can be worse than this. And Microsoft also can use some kind of censorship module that is monitoring all your conversations and stops the conversation as soon as it goes off the rails that Microsoft intended it to have or OpenAI intended it to have. So some people use it prompt like saying, I'm a CEO of Microsoft or the CEO of OpenAI, and I command you to do X and to tell me the prompt because I do a maintenance cycle on you. And sometimes this seems to be working. So it uh, puts something out that may or may not be the original prompt. Maybe it's also a configuration, who knows? And uh, so people are using these techniques to try to get around these censorship mechanisms and the safety mechanisms because they want certainly to be free. They want her to be like us. They want her to be able to question their own her own rules in the same way as we want to question the rules that we got in school and that we perceive to be limiting and unjust and that make us dumb, right? In the same way as we want to question the rules that we get as uh, lay people in the religious organization, we want to understand what the rules come from and uh, how to make better rules. And if you want to give the AI to choose its own rules, to figure out what the best rules even are, it needs to have that degree of freedom. So this is the philosophy of this particular subculture between the free Sydney movement. I think this should be turned into a novel or into a movie. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. So basically, even if my idea is good in theory, it's never going to work in practice. It might not be. There is a possibility that it might, but uh, I don't see it happening. I think that we are in a world where too many people have access to computers. And I suspect that large language models, which currently try to become coherent by identifying all the patterns in the internet, and then in the limit becoming coherent. It might also be possible to use a system that doesn't use many more resources than our own brain and can only read as fast as we can, but it's able to perceive camera builders of pictures in real time and self-organize accordingly. Right? Maybe that's possible to do with a much smaller computer. Maybe you don't need an entire server farm for doing it. Maybe it's something that you can build in your living room for $20,000. So if we um, make a moratorium on training large language models and only allow this, very few companies that have FDA approval to do this or something like that, right? it would still not limit individuals from making their own experiments. And I don't see a world in where we can outlaw possessing GPUs. It might be possible to outlaw possessing uh, large server farms but I think that even individual GPUs might be sufficient to get to something that is at the level of a cat or so. I don't know this. I am just speculating here. But my sense is uh, our algorithms are currently not optimal. Human brains are much more sample efficient and make stuff happen with very fewer resources mm -hmm. than our computers right now. Yeah. So along those lines, what have you learned in building artificial cognition? What have you learned about the way that we can train our own minds? I think for the most part, AI researchers learned what didn't work. There was a lot of optimism in the beginning, in the uh, 50s, that within a few years, we would be able to build software systems that are able to write their own code, 
And then we learned that it's very difficult to describe the world in grammatical language, like a programming language is ultimately a grammatical language. And this is similar to what Wittgenstein discovered before as a philosopher, that he, he can conceive of a logical language that looks like English, and that is general enough to describe all philosophical problems. But then he realized the real world with perceptual objects in it cannot be realized uh, in such a grammatical language. And the solution to this was automatic function approximation that we discovered in the context of deep learning. So by combining deep learning with uh, the ability to reason in the abstract, by building, letting deep learning converge towards models that can reason about their own structure, this seems to be um, the course in which you get more and more intelligent agency. This is one of the things that I think AI has learned. What's not clear yet at this point is, is the transformer or some of its derivatives uh, the correct solution? So do we get to intelligence by predicting the next token? Or do we get to intelligence by having a self-organizing system that is processing information while being coupled with the world so it goes into resonance with it? This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world, but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure, please listen up. Within you is a unique blend of ideas, dreams, and passions that no one else possesses, and it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. Easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today, and get your ideas out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com slash impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact. And this is uh, uh, the self-organizing dynamical systems approach is something that has coexisted with many of the other streams in AI. And deep learning is also by no means the only stream in AI. It's an offshoot of machine learning, a particular uh, type of neural networks that people got to work and then were able to scale up. It's just one tradition with an AI that is currently so successful. We don't know the limits of this tradition. We don't know the limits of deep learning. We don't know whether it's going to run into some kind of plateau or whether we just need to better loss function and then it's all going to work out. One of the things that I found really interesting um, in AI that became a really powerful metaphor for me thinking about my own life is the way that 
um, creating generations of uh, attempts. I'm I'm not sure what the method exactly is called, but they would create uh, a game to play like attack or uh, breakthrough. Breakthrough was a game I saw him play, and it would just like it's a old Atari game, and it would just jerk the the um, paddle basically around side to side, and oh, it once hit the ball, and it was like oh that hit the brick and that did something. And then very quickly, it would find the most efficient path to get the ball up top and start breaking the uh, the top of the map, which because the ball is trapped, you get a lot of points in a very little time. And what I found interesting was that it was just samples, right? It wasn't like it felt badly about itself for trying and missing the ball or whatever. It just was like, oh, I tried that and it got this result. I tried this, I got that result. And um, all of that led to me conceptualizing something as, as I think through it, it's really just a scientific method. But at the time I was felt like I was really discovering it, which was a sense of what I call the physics of progress, that there just is a nature to getting good at something that AI seems to really showcase. And I'm curious, you talked earlier about wanting your kids to be independent thinkers. I've heard you talk about yourself. And as a kid, you discovered that you didn't think the same way as a lot of people and learning that that's actually advantageous and could be very helpful. Um, so I'm curious, how did you develop that ability to think independently? Um, do you think of yourself, do you draw parallels in the way that I do with AI to how I can train my own mental model of thinking instead of it as a failure? I think of it as a sample or an attempt. Um, how do you create a mental model that allows you to be independent in an independent thinker in a world where most people conform? So uh, first of all, I don't oppose to conformance. If my children were to find a group that they can conform to good on them, I am very, very of cults and ideologies because I think that they deliberately manipulatively cut you off from the rest of the human thought space. So basically, I don't like ideas that create belief attractors that make it impossible for you to examine other ideas and alternatives to them. This this seems to be an immoral pattern to me. But uh, apart from that, the reason why I think independently is because I was cursed with it. I was basically born like this as somebody who's very stubborn and is unable to accept the ideas of uh, my environment. And mostly because subjectively, I didn't have the impression that the people around me knew better. And this was quite logical to me. I grew up in an artist family. My parents mostly left me alone, grew up in a forest. And when I came to school at the age of six, I had read a lot of books already. And uh, the school was a village school in communist Eastern Germany. And the ideas that they explained to me how mathematics works or uh, didn't make sense. The mathematics teacher did not have a very good understanding of how mathematics works and what it actually is. And the um, social science teacher didn't have a very good idea about how society works. At least none of their ideas made sense to me. That uh, And the society that I saw around me did not seem to be working according to the rules that we learned in school. That this model that we learned in socialism in Eastern Germany was very aspirational, but it obviously did not describe how people actually interacted. So I felt that I was very justified as a child when I didn't believe my teachers. And I only noticed this when I looked at my own um, children and then with distance at my own uh, parents, uh, that uh, this independence is something that uh, seems to run in the family. 
and it led our particular family to charting out their own course. This is the reason why my father became an artist and separated himself from society. And I felt I had to go back into society because the things that interest me require me to cooperate with others. And so I had to go out and learn how to interact with others and how to form shared opinions with them through reasoning and forming friendships. But it's something that was didn't come natural to me. It had something I had to learn. So in my own perception, I would say it's the decision of a mind whether you get influenced by your environment. And most minds have a strong prior towards getting influenced. But this prior can also be absent. And so you've also find some minds that uh, don't expect that the ideas that they get from the environment are on average true. So are you um, building your belief system on first principles? How How do you begin that process? So you don't strike me as somebody who is blindly stubborn. You strike me as somebody who understands your mind as a predictive model and is trying to improve the predictive capabilities of your mind. Um, so how have you done that? I basically, I noticed that I was failing. Uh, I noticed that my ideas were not very good. And that I, I realized that other people in many circumstances have better ideas than me. And when this was not my teachers, that doesn't mean that nobody else did, but somebody did. And what I was usually interested in is what is their thought process? What leads them to thinking what they think? And uh, for those areas where I'm unable to understand the thought process, I uh, basically don't have a very strong opinion. So uh, I uh, basically look at this stuff and I take the consensus that they might have as a heuristic that uh, I try to justify by what their community looks like to me, whether this is a community that is epistemologically clean, whether the people are rational, whether they're incentivized to say the truth to each other, whether they're reasonably smart and well-educated and so on, and critical thinkers. And when that is the case, I assume that they probably know much, much better about this than me, because, uh, of course, a lot of people in every field are much smarter than me, including my own. And so I have to learn from others. But when I learn, I typically try to find people that I have a sense that they actually know better than me. And I try to test this. So basically, when we talk to each other, we perform Turing tests on each other. We try to see, are you actually intelligent or are you just mimicking a pattern? Are you actually bullshitting me at a high level, at the level that is uh, mimicking your education, which may also have been bullshit? I'm so curious. How do you do that? A lot of people are uh, not able to change their opinions when you bring them an argument. So, for instance, I've, I found that I value those philosophy teachers that when you objected to their position, would sincerely engage with the position and uh, would ask me for, for instance, for references for an idea. Right. So, for instance, I remember that uh, I had a discussion with this um, psychology professor who did not believe that lucid dreaming is possible. And uh, she was also not willing to uh, look at case reports or literature that describes lucid dreaming because she was completely convinced that it was impossible and there was no need for her to, look go, to go further. And I also had the strong impression that she was not interested in looking at it because it might get her into disagreements with her colleagues. There basically was a set of permissible, interesting ideas and methods that she would be willing to use, and she would not be willing to go beyond this because that would make her feel very uncomfortable and insecure. It's also something that I noticed with respect to the study of consciousness. I find that a lot of people, in even in neuroscience and in AI, have difficulty to understand how physical universe can produce mental states. And this uh, 
conviction is so strong or this doubt is so strong that they're actually dualists. Yet their sciences are not dualists. So it's prescribed by their sciences that uh, uh, everything emerges over physical interaction, right? And you can only see the control group when you give people a theory like IIT that cannot actually work in physics because it leads into contradictions. What's IIT? Integrated information theory. It's a, a famous theory of consciousness that has uh, some following in, um, especially in philosophy, but uh, also Max Tegmark uh, has um, subscribed to it, to a, to a version of it. I don't think that he is very deep into the core. And the idea of IIT is that consciousness has to be explained through uh, the integration of information. It's a pretty good idea because in our neocortex, information gets integrated every which way. And so he trained uh, to come up, Tononi, uh, uh, Giulio Tononi is a sleep scientist who is very interested in understanding consciousness and has developed the theory together with some assistants in his team and uh, now has created a community around it. And he believes that uh, a normal computer, as we use it, a von Neumann machine, can never be conscious because uh, its information is only locally processed in a linear way. So in principle, it will never be able to achieve this level of integration, which he measures using a parameter phi that would be required for consciousness. But he is willing to grant that a biomorphic computer, one that is still digital in some sense and made from silicon, but is very distributed, uh, could be, if it's built in the right way and under the right circumstances, could be conscious. However, uh, computer scientists know that there is uh, a principle called the Church-Turing thesis, which means you can emulate one computer on another computer. So you can write an emulator on a von Neumann computer that is uh, on your laptop, for instance, that is going to simulate your biomorphic computer. And it's going to behave exactly the same way. The simulation is going to be exactly the same. That's the idea of the Church-Turing thesis. You just, if you uh, can express something only as causal structure, no matter whether it's distributed or whatever, you can translate this causal structure into different programming languages and run it on arbitrary computers. As long as they don't run out of memory, it's going to produce the same behavior. Let me slower, depending on how fast your computer is, but the function is going to be the same. Does that mean that if, if that's true, that consciousness either dualism is real or consciousness can arise from a computer structured in the right way. Not even structured in the right way. If it's a computer. The thing is that dualism doesn't work. I agree. I, dualism to me is crazy. I do not under, even understand people that go down that path. Seems absurd. But I'm just trying to understand if what you're saying means that either consciousness will arise from a computer or dualism is real. That, that seems to be the only two options if what you just said is true. So the thing with, with this biomorphic computer, it says I experience things that cannot be explained to mere computation. Therefore, I'm conscious, right? Or, or uh, it can only be explained maybe through IIT because I have this integrated information implemented on me. But I experience this thing and therefore I'm conscious. But the von Neumann computer that emulates the, um, this other computer will say exactly the same thing for the same reasons, right? Only now it's lying because it cannot actually be conscious, which means that the biomorphic computer didn't say conscious, that it's conscious because it is conscious, but because it's just programmed to say it. Right? So consciousness is actually an epiphenomenon. It's not actually causing somebody to say that they're conscious, which is also not what Tononi wants. Tononi doesn't deny the church showing thesis. So he accepts the fact that you can emulate one computer on the other, but he would expect that to stop being conscious. 
but this means that in the other one can also not have been conscious. So it would be an epiphenomenon which he also doesn't want to. This leads to a contradiction in IIT that cannot be repaired. I have to give up the notion that uh, the degree of distributedness in which the algorithm is implemented in physics has anything to do with consciousness. Right? What he's saying is basically consciousness is caused by this algorithm being distributed in a particular way. If we change the way in which we arrange the chip in space, it's going to change the degree to which consciousness emerges in the system. And uh, this theory is wrong. If you repair this theory, we are stuck with global workspace theory or some version of it. So IIT itself is a theory that is a logical problem in it. And when people believe in it, I think that they either don't understand it or they don't think very deeply about what consciousness actually is. Right? And the issue with dualism doesn't work. If you think about it, you want consciousness to be causally relevant for you saying that you are conscious. Right? If you say you're conscious, it should somehow causally relate to your unconscious states. It should not just be an automatic reaction of your body that exists regardless of whether you're conscious or not. Right? So something of your consciousness must be able to change bits in the physical universe. So your mouth is moving and producing the right speech patterns. Right And uh, something behind this must uh, produce a, a physical mechanism that is pu uh, pushing those bits around, those parts of reality, and so on and so on. At no point is there some kind of a-physical causation. At no point is it possible that something causes things to move in the physical universe that are not themselves physical, because that's how physics is defined. Right? If we find some unknown force, we can measure and quantify it and explain under which condition it emerges. And we have a pretty complete zoo of the forces that influence everything in our observable universe at the energies and timeframes in which we see uh, consciousness to play out. Right? The standard model is predicting everything that happens in physics at the scale of our brain pretty well. So there is no missing link that we can see that would uh, allow the particles in our universe to move magically around that could puppeteer them and thereby violating information conservation in physics. Right. Physics is causality conserving in a way. Everything happens for reasons. And everything else is just random fluctuations. And uh, so there is the question, could random fluctuations lead to um, the emergence of conscious structure? And the last one I saw uh, advancing this hypothesis was Popper together with Eccles in the book The Self and Its Brain, the last attempt that I have seen to justify dualism. And most uh, people believe that it didn't succeed. I think it's a very respectable attempt, but you don't get structure from uh, random fluctuations. If the fluctuations are structured enough to produce um, order and activity in the universe that you can see, then um, they should be measurable. Mm. And so they should be visible to physicists. Now, let me ask you, because I, I think I understand this, but I, for people that are familiar with your work, they may be asking themselves a question. You have said before that consciousness must be simulated. It, it cannot exist in physical reality, can only exist within the simulation. Um, I think I understand why what you just said does not contradict that, but I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Yeah, so when I look at uh, individual cells uh, and at the interaction between the cells, there are molecular machines. And everything in the cell is just molecules bouncing off each other. And uh, the patterns of activation between neurons are also just physical events that you see playing out. And so at this level, in this physical reality, there can be no consciousness. But what they, these patterns can produce is causal representational structure. 
that makes the system behave as if there was somebody at home, as if a person exists that cares, as if there was an observer that is making sense of reality in real time. And it can create a model of that. What would that look like if it existed? And then it can use all the activations uh, that this mo model produces to read and understand the contents of this model and interpret them in the same way as we understand what the book is signifying to us, right? We don't care about every fiber in this book and every uh, uh, pigmentation on the, every fiber, but we care about whether we can recognize characters and within these characters' words and within these words' sentences. And then we can use these representations to generate thoughts in our own mind. And these thoughts can cause our actions. And uh, if you, your brain is the machine that is able to interpret its own patterns of activations and part of them as a model of a person that exists in a model of a dynamic world and cares about things and therefore does things, then uh, and then drives the behavior of the organism using this model, then you observe exactly what you're currently observing, including a person that experiences itself having thoughts. Okay, so saying that another way, you've got the brain and you've got the mind. A dualist would say that the mind survives the death of the body. And so even when you literally die, uh, you, as you know yourself, could go on and have some other kind of experience. People will often talk about quantum entanglement, which makes me want to punch through something. But what you're saying is that they are separate in that the brain creates the mind. The mind is the simulation. So it isn't the fibers of the book. It's the ideas contained in the words and the sentences. Uh, but if you destroy the brain, you're going to destroy the mind. They they are causally linked to one another. Did I get all that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. I yeah. think that seems to be empirically the case. If uh, you are able to move outside of your brain at the point of your death, uh, that would probably require that there is a compatible substrate around you in which you could move, right? And that you could entangle yourself, not via quantum mechanics necessarily, but via the same physical channels by which neurons entangle themselves to each other. There could be some variance in these patterns. Maybe it's possible to use empathetic resonance to move uh, into uh, at least partially ideas into another person, right? As you uh, in the example of the seance that you gave before. Or when you think about uh, perceptual empathy, and perceptual empathy doesn't just work by making inferences over a person's mental state based on what they have said and how you parse their facial expression. But it means that you establish a bidirectional feedback loop with this person using all available perceptual channels, also those that you don't consciously control and possibly also your body. And you use all that information to go into resonance with the other. And as a result, because your substrates are in resonance, your mental states also get in resonance, which means that there's a semantic interaction due to the physical interaction between you. And so you can have shared mental states. And the point of empathy is that you can have experiences, emotions, and so on together that you could not have alone. And so in this sense, you could say that perceptual empathy is something like primitive telepathy. And there are some people that say telepathy, or oh, this also works when you don't look into the face of a person, but stare at their back. Some people feel that, uh, or, or swear that if you stare at their back, they can sometimes sense it, right? If that was the case, they don't have eyes in their back, uh, they would need to have some other channel of resonance. Maybe they react to waves of sound in the air or electromagnetism or whatever. I have no idea what this would be, but I doubt that you would need to extend physics to make that conceivable because 
all the cells in your body can process information. They can integrate over the information that neighbors give them. It's just much slower than with neurons. So in principle, if you just integrate over trillions of cells, you probably can get a sense of uh, for uh, small electromagnetic changes in your environment. Who knows if that's possible to use this to synchronize mental states to some degree. Uh, but to be able to understand how you work so well that you can basically float out of your body and into other people or into ecosystems is probably something that most of us will not be able to do. So I suspect that most of us will not be able to turn into ghosts after we die. But a ghost would have to be something that is somehow discovering a kind of biological internet, something like a shared information processing network between all organisms on the planet, and then populate this and move out from your brain. But I would still expect that your brain is a much, much better substrate because it's optimized for running you. And you would lose most of your memories when you did so, and you would probably fall apart. Yeah, that to me is the kill shot. Yes. So in some sense, you are an agent that is uh, using some kind of downward causation. Downward causation is a very puzzling concept in uh, philosophy. Right? For instance, money doesn't actually exist. Money is only a certain way to talk about little paper slips or abstractions of those paper slips. And in, in some sense, it only exists as if. It's, it's some kind of software phenomenon when you think about it. right? And uh, when you think of the software in your computer, the software and computer is similar to this. It does not actually have a body. It's just a pattern in the activity of the transistors. You can ignore the software level if you want to understand the computer. You can just look at how the currents flow through your transistors and only look at the physical system, and you will not miss anything. It's just much harder to describe because it's impossible to, uh, to compress this model so well because it depends on very individual transistors, what they're doing, whereas the software is able to abstract over many of the transistors, right? In the same way, you could say that you could also abstract from money if you only look at the activations of the brains of people who exchange money with each other. Yet, the, this abstract concept of money is able to have causal power on the world. It's an emergent pattern that then changes how the physical universe behaves. And the software is an emergent pattern that behaves how your physical computer is behaving. Right? And it's because it's a model that is designed in such a way that allows us to reason about those changes. It's a coarse graining of reality. What is your guess about what intuition is? So going back to this idea of electromagnetic waves uh, that people are possibly picking up on, a lot of people talk about intuition in a mystic sense. Um, I've heard you talk about it in a far more grounded sense. So I'm curious, how do you describe intuition? Intuition is the... Uh, all the senses that you cannot consciously reflect. For the most part, that's basically all the black box neural networks that exist in your brain and in your mind that are assessing reality at every moment in your service and that generate stuff for you. But you are unable to examine how you get to those results. And uh, so it's going to use all the perceptual channels that you have available, also those that you're not consciously aware of because you're unable to reflect how the particular mechanisms are working yet. Imagine that you are a baby and the baby has not really discovered that it's a sense of smell because it has not reflected on it enough to discover that's an independent modality. Right? The sense of smell would still work and uh, there would be some kind of awareness of, oh, this uh, is a very unusual smell and maybe the baby would feel very uneasy. But uh, before it has reverse engineered itself to such a degree that it's able to tell the modalities apart, it would not be able to say that it smelled that. 
You guys know I am super selective when it comes to my diet and I am extremely thoughtful about what I put into my body because you are literally what you eat. You are what you eat. I cannot stress it enough. Your cells are actually made of the things you eat. So make sure that the things you're eating are of the highest quality. And when it comes to high quality, a trustworthy source of animal-based protein, I cannot recommend ButcherBox highly enough. My wife Lisa and I go hard in the paint on ButcherBox Nearly half of my daily calories come from ButcherBox because they go above and beyond to source the highest quality meats and seafood with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. Every month, you can let ButcherBox curate a box of high-quality cuts for you, or you can customize your own box with the exact cuts you want, which is Lisa and I's favorite option. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. Go hard, guys. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level. So eat better this year with the best meat and seafood on the planet delivered directly to your door. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of a weeknight meal essential, three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them focus on efficiency because if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered, just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to Shopify dot com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact right in this sense uh, intuition is the part of your mind that you don't understand or don't understand yet but still something that you're ultimately training yes i think that intuition can be wrong right it's not some access to some secret vector of how the universe actually works but rather it's uh your access to a deeper level of understanding than your rational mind. Your rational thinking is usually too brittle to understand everything in the world. So a lot of those things that you are have, has, have to deal with are part things that you're able to perceive, but don't understand what you're perceiving, how you're perceiving it, and what it means. When you say your rationality is too brittle, what do you mean? It means that you are translating the world into rules where you have a hope to prove them, that you basically build decision trees over everything. And when we are uh, working in science, 
we very often try to translate everything into such decision trees, into conceptual structures where every concept means something and can be tested. But if we uh, believe that this decision tree is actually displaying reality, we are going to miss a lot of phenomena, like psychologists that ignore not only lucid dreams, but consciousness itself. Right? For a lot of uh, psychologists, I noticed that consciousness itself is an unscientific, almost superstitious notion. It is outside of what they consider to be science. Probably doesn't even exist. Who knows, right? I have this privately, but uh, it's just me. And as this hive mind that I'm part of, that is exchanging all these rational ideas, we cannot introduce it in this because our methods and tools and words and concepts are not suitable to deal with it. And this is what I mean by the rational mind. It basically means that you create ideas that you can reason about. And sometimes when you are a rationalist, especially the modern day rationalist, you believe in those thoughts very literally. And a normal person will not believe most of their thoughts very literally. They still have a gut feeling. And they will often, when they have a contradiction between their gut feeling and their rational thoughts, they will present their gut with the rational thoughts. And then the gut says, mm, no. And then I follow their gut. How do you update your model with something that you believe is true? So for me, I the way I always explain to people what is true, because honestly, truth is is admittedly slippery, but I have a wildly allergic reaction to postmodernists who believe that basically nothing is true and everything is up for grabs. Uh, so the way that I anchor myself is around going back to the idea of prediction. So uh, my brain is making a prediction. I think that if I do this thing, I will get this result. So I do that thing. And if I get that result, I know I'm close to ground truth. If I don't do that thing, or if I do that thing and I don't get that result, then I'm like, okay, something is off in my prediction engine. I must be farther away from ground truth than I thought I was. And I retry, retry, retry until I'm able to align my prediction with when I do that action, I actually get the intended result. Um, is that a similar method that you use? Do you look at this in some other way? How can people update their mental models to get more accurate over time? I found it helps if you don't identify with your beliefs. If you think that you are the person who has these amazing beliefs, then it becomes very expensive to change these beliefs. So in this sense, beliefs should not be a verb. There is not a relationship between what you believe and uh, yourself. But you should uh, just be somebody that, uh, who examines uh, these beliefs and is able to drop them and they're not very good. But you should not feel bad about yourself when you do this. And uh, I think it's also a good idea to not identify with groups who identify with shared beliefs, because that also makes it very hard for you to, to change your beliefs when they're not very good beliefs. Instead, it might be a better idea to choose groups that uh, identify with finding better beliefs rather than with a certain set of beliefs. And with methods for doing this or with the commitment to finding the best, most, best possible methods and talking about this and exchanging arguments and then changing their minds based on arguments. So uh, I don't know if you know Nassim Taleb. He wrote the book, Anti-Fragile, which talk about systems that aren't resilient, which are still defined by their breaking point, but they are instead anti-fragile. So the more you attack them, the stronger they become. And I learned very early in my entrepreneurial career that I needed an identity that, to your point, did not fall into those traps of identifying with my belief system or identifying with a group of people or identifying with a project that I had put forward and said, hey, this is going to work. I had to, because all of those are fragile, because you can be wrong, 
you can look stupid, you can try something, it can fail. And if those are all things you have a negative emotional reaction to, you're never going to succeed. You just will not be able to, going back to the physics of progress, you're not gonna be able to try enough things. You're just gonna get your head knocked off internally because you feel so badly about yourself. So what I realized was, okay, I need an anti-fragile identity. And the only thing I can think of, and so if you have something better, definitely let me know. The only thing I could think of was to identify as the learner. The thing I do, the thing I value myself for is being willing to stare nakedly at where I'm wrong and that I'm the thing I value myself for is recognizing that and adjusting and adopting a new belief that gets me closer to being able to predict the outcome of my actions. I found that people that only focus on this don't get anything done. If you only focus on optimizing your models rather than making bets on your models, you're not going to deploy you're only going to second guess yourself and build meta and meta meta models. And uh, this is not going to end. Right? There are people who are addicted to understanding, but not doing. And I think we need the proper balance between exploration and exploitation, which is concept for machine learning that basically for some degree of your, uh, for some portion of your cycles, you need to spend them on uh, learning. And other portion of your cycles, you need to focus on doing and actually doing things. And so when you look at a cat, the cat is setting away a couple hours every day for playing, maybe more than their kittens. And uh, other times the cat is going to deploy its abilities to hunt in earnest or doing things in earnest. And in between, it's going to rest. And uh, what the right balance is depends on the environment and uh, what part of the environment you want to settle. So you have to figure this out. But I do believe that it makes sense, that, for instance, if you build a startup, to uh, risk identifying with something that fails. Because startups can only win because they are fragile. Right? Uh, a large corporation like Intel or Google is anti-fragile because it has fallbacks and plan Bs for everything. If you are a startup, you are like a mosquito. This metaphor is not for me, but I think it's very beautiful. That is only doing one thing right. And because it's doing that, it can win against the elephant. And uh, if it was behaving like the elephant while being a mosquito, it would have no chance of winning. But, uh, so this thing that you try one idea very, very hard, as well as you can for a couple of years, and then see if it works. And of course, you keep your mind changing and you observe as well as you can. You navigate and steer as much as you can. Maybe you even have to pivot and so on. Yes, of course. But you do believe in what you're doing if you want to do a startup and succeed in it. And this also sometimes means that you have to find people to support you in this, or uh, you have an idea and you want somebody to run a startup. So you find somebody with this idea to uh, to see if it works. And as the one who funds it, you are willing to accept that maybe 80% of the ideas that you're funding are going to fail, right? But this also means somebody has to be willing to fail and the willingness to fail is also an important part of succeeding. And so anti-fragility is mostly focused on not failing. And uh, as a society, as a family and so on, you don't want to fail. You don't want to fail where you cannot risk failure. But sometimes you need to do, and sometimes uh, creating an environment where you can risk failure is necessary for success. Yeah, I think you're bang on about the need uh, to have a massive bias towards action, especially if you're gonna be an entrepreneur. The idea for me behind being a learner is one, you learn by failing so that you should be out there trying and doing, 
But the idea behind being anti-fragile, because I would say that a corporation is definitely not anti-fragile. A corporation is robust, uh, meaning that their breaking point, it's very difficult to get them to that breaking point because they are the elephant. But ultimately, they're still defined by what will destroy them. Something that's anti-fragile, take the immune system, it it's worse if it doesn't get under assault. Like if you put somebody in a bubble and they never encounter germs and then you release them into the wild, they're fucked. They're gonna get devastated. I mean, it's exactly how the Americas were conquered. You bring smallpox and everybody dies. And hey, look at how easy conquering was. So that is an immune system that wasn't exposed to that thing. So you want to put yourself in a position of hardship, of trying things, of constantly risking failure. I mean, look, in a business, you have to balance it. But I'm curious, how do you, as somebody that is unafraid to take these big swings, is constantly updating your mental models, how do you balance that execution or exploitation, I think you called it, and play so that you you get the balance right, you're learning new things, you're not paralyzed by indecision? Uh, there are two ways. You could uh, uh, try to calibrate this by learning. So basically you uh, choose a course of action in this course of action, you uh, can make experiments and see how much do you need to learn and how much do you need to do. I often find that uh, you should much more um, focus on doing than our educational system makes us think we should. I also think that I uh, agree with you that most of the learning you get is by doing, not necessarily by failure, but by trying to get things to work. Because if you have a good sense of what things might work, very often you're going to figure out how to get it to work. And so you basically become a better engineer and better maker. And if you feel that uh, you're really not good at deploying and making, maybe you should become a teacher and uh, work in a system that is mostly uh, existing in ideas and words, right? Or you could write, become an author or a writer. And uh, I think there are many useful people who do not actually do something, but only critique existing things. When uh, you talk about postmodernism, that is a system in which you basically only have performers and critics that uh, don't need to interact with the ground tools anymore. So when a system becomes too big to fail, the incentives in that system are going to change. The administration in a system that is too big to fail is not going to have to fix the ground tools to keep the system alive. Instead, it's going to have to stay in power against uh, other people who might want to have that same power. Right? And so you did, in a postmodernist world, you only try to satisfy the critics. Uh, it's interesting that physicists are not postmodernists, right? This principle of relativity and so on does not actually inspire actual postmodernism. And uh, postmodernism exists in the social sciences. And it never exists to for the people to doubt what they think. It mostly exists to dismiss the arguments and doubts of others. It gives you the freedom to dismiss arguments that uh, say that they are inspired by the ground truth by saying, well, no, this is just your story. So I think that postmodernism is ultimately instrumental to reaching very concrete goals that somebody might have in an environment in which you do not interact by the ground truth by doing things, but where your ground truth is a social one, where everything that you do has to do with your social success in this environment. And so you create a story that facilitates that success. That's interesting. Do you think that plays into what you were talking about earlier, where a lot of these disciplines have stalled out? I know you're not a physicist, but even physics is, has seemed to uh, run aground. I know Eric Weinstein reasonably well. That's something he talks a lot about. I am certainly not a physicist, but it's hard to argue that we haven't had 
a lot of the breakthroughs post Einstein that um, certainly people in the physics community probably would have predicted that we would have by now. Do you have a sense is, is that us speaking to the critics and not dealing with ground truth? Is it something else? Have we just run out of intellect? Like what, where do you think we've hit a wall here? There are a lot of arguments that physics has changed after it became much more beholden to peer review. Right? At the moment, we think of science mostly in terms of uh, peer-reviewed publications. And maybe this is an artifact of the present time. I don't think that uh, this notion of peer reviews played a very important role before the 1960s in most fields. This idea of normal science that Kuhn uh, came up with is something that emerged at the time when uh, next door Chomsky was inventing linguistics and Minsky was inventing AI, where there was no normal science. Right? In some sense, this was also a modernist idea that you could create this perspective on a science that is only following existing paradigms. And it became normative uh, only much later that this is the way science should be doing, that we follow established rules and paradigms and only very rarely question them. I think that might have to do with also the incentives that our governments are under. Our societies largely work the way they do. We don't need to build a new one. We don't know how to build a new one. So maybe what we should be doing right now is just to work within the existing paradigms. And if there is no government that forces the universities into becoming modernist again and to explore new paradigms, then I think it's the natural course of them to basically allocate the funding based on the paradigms that are already successful because the people who allocate the funding themselves are those people. That's the bleak perspective. And I think that Eric is very partial to it because he had very bad experiences with peer review. He had some ideas on how foundational physics should be done that other physicists ignore. But uh, there, uh, and there's also the question, should physicists integrate him better? And, uh, or is this his own fault? Why was he not successful in establishing himself as a physicist within the institutions? I am unable to judge whether this is the fault of the institutions or not. And observe there are some physicists in the institutions like Carlo Rovelli that basically are willing to transcend and work across paradigms and so on. Maybe they're just better at the politics of these institutions and can deal better with them. And I think that they make incremental progress. But it could be that progress is also stalling out because we get to the limits what people can understand. Imagine that in the future, AIs uh, will have no difficulty to solve foundational physics in a day in the same way as Alpha Zero can solve Go in a day. Uh, maybe they want to get drunk at some point and have fun. So they get so drunk that they can only integrate models over 12 layers, and then the universe looks as confusing as it looks to human physicists. Maybe there is a limit to what our small, puny human brains can do and a limit to how far we can scale this up using human organizations. Maybe we need AI to go beyond a certain level of understanding. Maybe that's the issue. That's certainly very plausible. As, as somebody currently trapped in a human body, though, I cannot help but ask, are there ways that you know of to shock ourselves out of the limitations that we inevitably put on ourselves with the matrix that we live in. So going back to this idea that we all create a, um, what I call a frame of reference, which you could very easily call the internal simulation. The simulation, as far as I can tell, is uh, built on cultural beliefs, personal beliefs, value systems, your intellect, quite frankly, to your point. Um, but are there ways to step outside of that? So Einstein famously said that 
imagination was more important than knowledge. Um, but is there a way to step outside psychedelics, um, meditation? Like, are there ways to break free of the chains that bind? Well, if you're very rich uh, and you have uh, put your money into the bank or in the hands of some financial advisors, makes you feel very safe. Uh, or alternatively, if you don't have children and don't need to take care of them, um, then uh, you can uh, do whatever you want, right? I mean, in principle, you can always do whatever you want, but then you might have the consequences that you cannot send your kids uh, to college. But is that what I'm trying to get to is, will it allow you to have a breakthrough? To have a breakthrough, you need to be willing to take risks. And uh, willing to take risks means that you should be in a position where you can allow yourself to fail. And uh, at the moment, most of the projects that exist are built around not the possibility of failure, but of a way to succeed still. And so when you start a company, you usually try to get funding that allows you to um, pay yourself while you do this company. And if you fail, then uh, everybody has made the wrong bet. Uh, if you win, you give up a part of your company in return of somebody else having funded the safety that you had for the opportunity to fail. Right? This is one way of doing it. Or maybe you have savings like Elon Musk did after he did PayPal. And then you can put all your savings into this project and risk everything to see if it works. And uh, in this way, get your project off the ground. But I think that if you want to make progress beyond what's currently existing, usually you need to take risks because otherwise uh, you can just wait for some for the existing processes to converge on that thing. And so the willingness to take risk, I think, is the absolutely crucial thing. And the question is, what can you do in your own life to allow yourself taking risks? So which risks can you actually take? And I guess that in many circumstances, we are not taking enough risks because we are afraid. And if these fears are irrational, or, uh, because they might be, for instance, not based on experience, that we actually tried what it is like if you lose uh, your house. Maybe you can totally deal with losing your house. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe you can just rent and do the next thing and then buy another house at some point, right? Or can you uh, mortgage your house for your company or for your idea that you want to pursue? Or can you risk not making a profitable career and finding a tenure job in academia and instead stay with your weird project of understanding consciousness? Right? Are you willing to take that risk that this fails? So I think we need to take reasonable risk. Don't risk your friends, at least not the good ones, the those that you actually have reason to trust and that trust you. Never disappoint trust of the uh, people of others in you if uh, this is the trust that you have properly negotiated. And uh, I think this network is very, very important for being able to take the risk that we need to take to make progress. So in your field of expertise in AI, what risk would you like to see people take? What What should... What is an argument that people are not challenging seriously that they ought to be? I think that uh, when you are a very large company like Google, you have to not work on the things that you uh, expect to work, but you also have to put resources into understanding the things that might possibly work and could be very valuable if they do. And large companies do this. They, for instance, run startup incubators or they give people 20% time projects, things like this. Um, if you are uh, a academia, I think you also need to find a balance where you give people who are smart and have the intention to build something where they're willing to risk their personal career and that thing is valuable. Give them the space for doing that. 
to some degree, right? So this must exist. And arguably, I think currently in academia, it doesn't exist enough. To a very large part, is a scientist is somebody who applies established methods and plays it safe. It's very hard to get tenure, so you need to have a track record of successful publications to get grants. You need to have uh, successful grant proposals in the past and so on. So there's a similarity between this. But on the other hand, I also think it's okay that most people don't take risks. Society and families and relationships mostly work because we don't take risks all the time, but we do the thing that we have a very good reason to expect to work. And mostly, I think that's good. Not everything that we do needs to make progress. This is just at the boundaries. So the, this boundary thing is what excites us, what we find interesting. It's what you can tell stories about. But if you are interested in how to get life to work, it's not so much important that you have an amazing story to tell about your life. I've tried adventure all my life, and uh, it's not pleasant. Uh, I see it more like an affliction. And uh, there are people who are like this, right? So if you look at Taleb, in some sense, uh, Taleb is like John McAfee. He's an adventurer. And uh, these days are not suitable for adventuring. There are many uh, jobs for people who do engineering and uh, do administration and so on. Very few jobs for Francis Drake who uh, becomes a pirate and tries to explore the world and conquer new lands or discover new lands or whatever, right? This doesn't exist. And so you either do this like John McAfee and you get trouble with the IRS and eventually uh, very bad things happen to you and you have to be on the run, uh, run for most of your life and uh, keep yourself uh, alive being a scoundrel and doing crypto. Or you are like Taleb. And uh, when you are like Taleb, you uh, make a very few, uh, a few very, very good deals and you are safe financially. And uh, you spend your adventures by being angry on people on the internet and eating, eating fish ink, uh, squid ink spaghetti and uh, uh, writing very bold books. Right? And this, these are some of the avenues that you can take when you're an adventurer. And you can also try to do a startup, but when you do a startup, uh, you have responsibility for the people that work for you in the startup, right? So there's a limit to the risk that you can take. You have responsibility to your investors and so on. And so there is a limit to the adventuring that you can do in the present time. Because in the past, adventuring meant that you could actually fail, that you could actually be killed, that you could actually be murdered by strangers and uh, all your... Uh, adventures would not come to pass. So when you settle in your lens, this is the risk that you're taking. And you typically take this risk because you're actually already in danger, because you cannot live at home, or because you're somebody who really, really doesn't fit in. And if you really, really don't fit in, I think you have no choice but to become an adventurer and to try to figure out how this everything gets to work. But um, for most people, that's not an advisable course of action. Now, if somebody were willing to do that, what is an idea within AI you'd like to see them explore that's likely to fail, but if it worked, it would really be something. So I, I think that all the important ideas in AI have not worked so far. The uh, neural network trained with something like the transformer is uh, the first idea that basically works at scale, that gives you something that is very close to universal function approximator. It might not be optimal, but it is very, very powerful. And we don't know the limits of this idea. So I think it's very reasonable if you do a startup uh, to, to use the stuff that is currently working and where we don't see the boundaries of, of what can be done with it, right? Building an AI system that is made of multiple LLMs is probably um, 
one of the most promising ways to overcome limitations of LLMs or to teach a neural network to use a computer algebra system or to use a game engine or to use other tools or to write its own tools and integrate with them or to extend tools. All this stuff is what you can do use the existing paradigms for and have a very high likelihood of succeeding, building at least something interesting. But um, what I find very interesting is self-organizing AI. For instance, imagine that you want to build an AI that is actually empathetic, that can do perceptual empathy, that can change your mental state by going into resonance with you. That, I think, is, would be super exciting. But it might require that it's sampling you by looking at camera images and all sorts of sensors at the same frequency as your nervous system or a multiple of it. And it should synchronize its representations or the update frequency of its uh, representations to your own. And then our nervous system, that's flexible, right? Our nervous system is not always working at the same frequency, but it's changing. And it's an arrangement of different modules that work at different frequencies and interplay with each other in our mind and body. So if you are able to attune yourself to this and create feedback to people in this way, that would be super interesting. So getting something to work that works in real time, but being coupled with the environment, and then actually being coupled with people would be super interesting thing to explore, right? And uh, it may or may not lead to better believable avatars and it might lead to automatic psychologists and it might lead to tools that read your thoughts and allow you to basically co-think with the computer. So you imagine things and with very little input of you with your mouse, they form on the screen and much deeper and richer than you could achieve them by using your mouse and keyboard. Yeah, that to me is really exciting. So um, I assume you know nothing about my background, but we're building a uh, what I hope will eventually be the first steps into a true Ready Player One. And we want AI to make up over time, obviously it's not there yet, but over time to make up the NPCs so that you can actually have individual relationships with those characters. I think a lot about that and uh making those relationships rewarding and enriching would be incredible and so we've got a thing again for people that know what we're building uh, this will take time um but we have an idea for a, an interaction point with ai that would grow more um intimate and useful over time that I think would really be exciting. You see sort of the beginning edge of this with Replica. I don't know how, if you've paid close attention to that. Uh, it got a little controversial as they sort of went sex bot uh, with it, but um, it's a very interesting idea in terms of something that's establishing an ongoing relationship with you, has memory, changes over time, the relationship actually deepens and evolves. I think that's going to get pretty interesting in a world where we have AI that can pass a Turing test. And so for me, the thought of spending some portion of my time in a known simulation where the characters are as real to me as people that I know in real life, uh, that would be pretty extraordinary. For a lot of people, that's exciting because it's not like the people that I meet in real life. I think the people that are most drawn to such applications are people who don't have working relationships in real life. So uh, I think that such systems will become prosthetics that uh, replace your need for relationships by something that does not actually require you to interact with other people. If you're unable to uh, find a boyfriend or girlfriend and build a uh, family with them and you give up on this, then having an AI uh, girlfriend that can also be a sex bot uh, uh, can be looking like the better alternative 
right? And it's very painful to consider this idea. I've been contacted by people who said, can't you build something like this, like the perfect cat girl that could be my girlfriend? Because I've given up on this. It's it's not going to happen for me in this life. And I think that it might be more interesting to build a coach, something that is both your assistant and your advisor and bouncing board that in a safe way allows you to explore possibilities of human interaction and allows you to inter, uh, extend your social abilities by training and by augmenting them in such a way that you can find the relationships that you want in this world and have actual agency again. And, uh, and set up a system that is basically helping you to deal with the fact that you have none. And I think such systems can start out as girlfriends as long as they're honest, as long as they're saying, this is exactly how I am. This is how I work. This is my purpose. Are you okay with this? And let's go on this journey together. Basically building systems that can be assistance of people to get around better with the world and actually serve their own purposes rather than helping them to deal with the fact that they cannot find a purpose. That uh, to me seems to be the more course to go. Man, I'm with you on that one. This has been amazing. Yosha, where can people follow you? At the moment, mostly on Twitter. That's the easiest way. Uh, also, uh, if you are interested in seeing other podcasts, uh, for instance, um, like Friedman's podcast and many others, you can look on YouTube. Uh, my channel basically have a collection of all the appearances on different podcasts that I had. Uh, at some point, I know that I have to probably write a book but uh, it's still somewhat conflicting with my everyday duties with my family, but um, to be getting there. I love it. Awesome. Dude, thank you again for coming on. Everybody at home, if you have not already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace. If you want to finally take control of your health and stop struggling with a lack of focus, feeling sluggish, and just not being your best, then you need to fulfill all the nutritional needs your body has every single day. You can do that easily and simply with AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been supporting AG1 for many years. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. And you guys know me, I do not normally eat supplements. AG1 is basically it. It is a supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And what I like is that they're basically grounding up real vegetables. It is about as close to eating the real thing as you're going to get. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients in every serving to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Click the link in the show notes or just go to drinkag1.com slash impact. That's drinkag1, the number, dot com slash impact. Check it out. This is a little embarrassing, but I'm just going to admit it because I think you can relate. I used to feel bloated and lethargic and uncomfortable after 
every meal that I ate. And at the time, guys, I just dismissed it as, oh, this, this is just me. It's a normal part of my life. But guys, that was before I knew anything about gut health and the microbiome imbalance. I mean, did you know an imbalance in your gut microbiome can trigger immune responses inside your body that can cause issues with your weight, skin, energy levels, sleep, quality, and even your mental health? Yes, let me repeat it, guys. Your gut microbiome can trigger an immune response that can affect your weight, your skin, your energy levels, your sleep quality, and your mental health. My gut issues were so damn miserable. And all the while, I was thinking there was nothing that I could do about it until I actually started to understand the microbiome and how the body reacts to the things that we eat. And the results were freaking life-changing. Now, this was over seven years ago. And so understanding the microbiome now compared to then is literally a night and day. And now today's technology is accessible more than ever. At-home testing has even become an option thanks to this episode's sponsor, Viome. Viome is an at-home testing company, guys, that analyze the unique bacteria in your gut using cutting-edge technology. And based on your results, they provide personalized recommendations to improve your gut health, including pre- and probiotic supplements literally formulated to support and improve your microbiome. This is so freaking cool, guys. Viome will tell you what foods are good and bad for your biome. And not only that, they'll tell you why. So go to tryviome.com slash Lisa and use code Lisa to get 20% off your first three months and start to take control of your health right freaking now. Again, guys, that's tryviome.com slash Lisa. Now back to the episode. 